Oh, December 19, 2010, lecture discussion number 28 on the book of Romans. And today, probably a good idea to insert the traditional cliffside, where are we now and how did we get here, sermon addendum. So I'll do that again. It's something I'm asked to do a lot. Uh, more often, often actually more often than I actually do it. I should do it more. I probably should do it every Sunday, especially now since so many people are trying to keep up with us. Routinely, I have a habit, and I have to do it this way. I made the commitment uh, almost 14, 15 years ago, really probably 20 years ago, that if I was going to do it this way, I'm going to have to back up all the time because I wander around. At least it seems I wander around. I hit my path is circular at best. It's chaotic at worst, and I lose people, and I, I know that. Uh, and it's a it's a hazard of the way I'm trying to do things. Unbeknownst to the casual observer, though, I actually do have a plan. I have a direction. I know it's hard to recognize, and so hence the required addendum. We have found ourselves, so here it is, we have found ourselves at 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12. How did we get there? How we get to 2 Samuel 11 and 12? We got there because of what? We're studying Romans what? Romans 3. What happens in Romans 3? Well, we have 9 through 20, which is essentially really quickly this. There is none righteous, no, not one. If you're going to remember something in Romans, this is it after Romans 1.17. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to quote King David. That's from the Psalms of David. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 51, Psalm 52, Psalm 32. And also Isaiah and Solomon. So right there, 3 through 20 of Romans, comes primarily the confession of David for his great sin. And I can't repeat this enough. His great sin of 2 Samuel 11. So Romans 3 to Psalm 53, Psalm 52, Psalm 51, to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. That's the popcorn trail. That's why um, we've got where we've got, and we're asking two things, essentially, now that we're in 2 Samuel. First and foremost, though, uh, why did David write, none righteous, no, not one, none seek after God, none understand, they have all turned aside. What made him write that? What did it? And then why does Paul use it to support Romans 1.17? What's Romans 1.17? It's the thesis. That's right. It's the thesis of the book of Romans. The great thesis, the saved shall live eternally by belief, or the just shall live by faith. Same thing. My paraphrase. The saved shall live eternally by belief. Romans 1.17 is saying eternal life, salvation, is faith-based. To be saved from deserved judgment, from condemnation, one must believe in the name of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.13 Believe. You must believe in the name of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.13 Obviously, it's important whenever you hear that to understand the definition of the name of Jesus Christ. Or what exactly is the name of Jesus Christ? You must believe in the name of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. 
So there's two elements here, the believe element and then the name of Jesus Christ element. So if I asked you, what exactly is the name of Jesus Christ? What does it mean? What is its totality? What is the totality of the name of Christ or the name of Jesus Christ? What would you say back to me? Well, it is going to bring you salvation, but what is the name of Jesus Christ? What does it mean? What is it? Well, first among those I'm going to submit is John 8:24. You must believe Jesus Christ is the I Am. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh, the Word made flesh, then you will perish. So you must believe that he is God. And then he asks you that you ask if you believe this that he alone is the resurrection and the life. John 11:26. Do you believe this? He asks. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God himself and do you believe that he is the only life and the only resurrection? Do you believe this? He asks you. So, that's a good start. But anyway, belief, believe, faith God has chosen belief as central to his plan of salvation. <coughs> and you hear it all the time. Do you believe? Are you a believer? That's a very common Christian speak now. And those are very good questions, by the way. And that causes the next obvious question, or what I like to say most recently, the most obvious of the obvious question. Of the obvious questions. Why belief? Why is it that you must believe in order to be saved? A lot of people don't think you have to believe. What do they think you have to do? You have to say something. They give you a phrase. Say this phrase. It's on page one of your little booklet that I give you. Please give me money. Read your little booklet and say this little phrase and you are what? Invite Jesus Christ where? Into your heart, they'll say to you. What's that mean? Is that even biblical? See me later. You must believe to be saved. Why? Why? And as I said, it's a question I get a lot. Especially being that so much of the modern day contemporary church emphasizes salvation by what? By works, by doing something. You have to do something, baby. And here's what you have to do right here. First thing that you have to do in the modern contemporary church is what? First thing you have to do. That's right. Give me money. You do that. Okay, that's good. Now we'll move on to the second thing in the list. Today, they say you are saved by works, by doing something. You'll see that. It's very common, by the way, um, uh, in the East Coast now. They have salvation, uh, group salvation or body salvation. I am saved if everyone else around me is healthy or whatever the case may be. It is silliness, frankly. Heresy. And that should be enough to solve it all by itself for you, that the modern Church today emphasizes salvation by human works, by doing something. You see, God is self-described. How does he describe himself? What does he say he is? He says he's something. What is he? He says he is spirit, John 4.24. And once you understand that God is spirit, John 4.24, then that explains Exodus 24. What's Exodus 24? 
Second commandment. What's the second commandment? Make no image of me. Don't do it. I am a spirit. Make no image. It makes perfect sense when you realize he's a spirit. You can't make it an image of an invisible spirit. Here's my image of God right there. Isn't it lovely? I, I, just, I just can't stand it. I guess I should rant and rave a little bit today. I can't stand it this time of year. I see w- one thing after another. What do I see? Pictures of Christ. And everybody goes, oh, there's Jesus. And he, he, it's astonishing to me. As if, and we recognize it. If we saw the statue, we saw the photograph, or, we, or the picture, or the painting, we'd go, oh, that's a painting, or that's a picture, that's a statue of Jesus. Really? No, it's not. It's a likeness of some artist's concept. It probably and likely, and okay, I'll say it honestly, it bears no resemblance to what Christ looks like at all. Christ was a smallish Jewish man. Isaiah describes him as unattractive at best, ugly at worst. What I like to say, it gets me in trouble. People come up and really get mad at me for saying this. Scary ugly. Not attractive. So get a picture of a very unattractive Jewish man in his 30s who's kind of smallish and short and put him on your wall. At least you're getting close. All of us that have pictures of blonde, German-looking Aryans with his hands raised up, sheeps all around him, that's just nonsense. Illiteracy. Okay. God is self-described. He is spirit. And he says, make no image of me. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the image. He is the, he is invisible God made visible. He is the image again. Uh, he's the image. That's the only image you get is Jesus Christ. Make no image of God. Jesus Christ is the image. Colossians 1.15. So belief is a function of something. What is it? Don't make an image. Don't do anything. I'm a spirit. Belief is a function of what? Of the mind. Which means it's what? It means it's a supernatural. It's a spiritual. It's a, a metaphysical process or a response. It is not a physical response. It's not something you can physically do. It is a spiritual process as opposed to a physical process or response, a spiritual reality versus a physical reality. It is the unseen. Belief is unseen. I do not get to see your belief. It may manifest itself out of you, but I cannot see the actual belief. I have no idea if you're really believing or not. You can fake it to me. I'm easily fooled. Ask my kids. As a teacher, you know, I used to wear a sign around my neck whenever the class would talk to me. You, uh, I, someday I'll just have to have the supposedly the 30th uh, reunion of, of the championship basketball team here coming up in a few years. And maybe I can get them all to come and have them all tell you about the sign I would wear at practice. It went around my neck, and I used it in my classroom a lot. It said, I believe you, really. I I really do believe you. Keep talking. I'm an idiot. But seriously, I cannot... I cannot know if you believe it is unseen, it is personal, it is a metaphysical, a supernatural, spiritual 
element that you have. It is unseen versus the seen. I may see the manifestations of your belief. I may see the witness of your belief. I may see actions that you do because you believe, but I do not see the belief. Again, we're also commanded to pray without ceasing, First Thessalonians 5.17. What's that? What is prayer? We're commanded to believe because it is a commandment. You will believe in the name of Christ. So if you don't believe that Christ is God, you don't believe that Christ is the resurrection and the life, then you are disobeying a commandment that he gives you. By the way, how am I doing for your trial? You cannot listen to me say, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God without doing something? What? Answering it. To yourself. Can I see your answer? No, it's a function of the mind. It's a supernatural response. We're commanded to pray without ceasing. Again, that's a function of the mind, the consciousness, your being, your essence, the immortal component. That is the component that God has put inside your physical body. This is why you must read, maybe not understand, but you've got to read George Berkeley and his, uh, his thoughts on physical reality. Because I want you to begin to ask a simple question. Okay, it's not so simple. But I want you to ask it anyway. I want you to ask it a lot. What is physical reality? I know some of you do that. I could turn the podium over to Jack right now, and seven hours later, he'd be right. He'd be in his introduction. But I, I want you. What is the? What is physical reality? And then I want you to ask: How does physical reality exist? If it does exist, and that, by the way, leads you to Colossians 1.17, all things consist in Christ. Then ask, why is there a physical reality? So how does physical reality exist? What is physical reality? Why is there a physical reality? In other words, what is the purpose of the physical reality? You love the physical reality, don't you? All of you do. All of us do. We love the physical reality. We love our little car. We love our... Whatever, guitar, or we love our house, our garden. I had a really good friend that had this shirt. This is a long time ago, and he loved his shirt. He thought he looked so good in this shirt. Boy, I look good in this shirt. This shirt makes me look good, and I love this shirt, and we're driving around. And I'm telling him, I said, his name was Tim. I said, Tim, there will come a time when that shirt is ruined, and you will despair over the shirt that you love. And it never occurred to me that he would buy more than one of these shirts. So when it broke, or when he spilled something on it, I mocked him. And he just smiled and said, I have 12 of these because I love them so much. So go buy 12 of what it is you love. But then I want you to ask, why do you love the physical reality? What is the physical reality? What is the purpose of the physical reality? What is the purpose of the physical reality? Why is there one? Why did God make it and put you, a spiritual composed being, with a physical machine? Why did he put you in the middle of the physical reality that he created? Why did he do it? See, I want you to realize that all experiences are in your mind. You realize you experience the physical reality in your mind. It, when I touch something, I feel it in my mind. 
That thought, that feeling is transmitted into my brain, which is a physical machine, but I have a mind inside that brain. And once you've wrestled with that for a while, you'll begin to grasp why belief is so important to our salvation. We should expect that the Spirit God would require what kind of reality? He would want a spiritual reality. He does not want a physical response to a spiritual issue. He wants a spiritual response to a spiritual issue. Beware of those who teach that salvation is something seen by others. That's very common today, very popular. Uh, the huge churches, some of the biggest churches there are, say that if I don't see evidence of your belief, you are not saved. You must do something. The evidence is more important than the belief. And I am the arbiter of the evidence, which I'd expect from them. Because if I am the arbiter of the evidence, I determine if you're saved or not, and therefore what do you have to do? That's right, give me money. It's a control-based system. Final question on this today. Just, again, let me repeat that. Beware of something, of anyone who teaches that salvation is something that is seen or witnessed or it's something physical or it's something that is human-based or that it is a work within this physical reality. Now the final question of this. I asked you, How is there a physical reality? Why is there a physical reality? What is the physical reality? Now, here's the most important question at all. Is there really even such a thing as physical reality? Do you love something that isn't real? That's George Berkeley. George Berkeley will tell you, and every philosophy class that you take will tell you, there is no such thing as physical reality. So if there is no such thing as physical reality, what is left? Spiritual reality. That is all that is real. And so you should love the spiritual reality. Okay, enough of that. But now you know why belief, why you must believe. It is a spiritual process. It is a mind process. You don't do anything. You believe. Are you a believer? Did you answer that? You can't help it. It's part of my plan. <laughs> Okay, Second Samuel eleven twelve. It's really that's true because I'm going to be at your trial. And I'm going to say I asked that question. And I remember him. He was in the second, third, fourth, fifth row on the left. Aha! Doomed you are at that point. There is a judge, and you will be judged for how you did in the physical reality that isn't real because you're spiritual. See, the point of the physical reality is to impress information on your spiritual component and to change your mind. That is a Romans. Issue, and we will get to it eventually. Renewing the mind. If you have to renew the mind, what tells you? What does that tell you about the mind? The mind can decline. It can degrade. What causes the de the decline and the de degradation of the mind? Okay, here we are. Second Samuel eleven twelve, the death slash murder of Uriah the Hittite. I will say it this way for today: the death of Uriah and the parable of Nathan. Okay, now last week in the course of our first foray into David and Bathsheba, I made some pretty bold, pretty bold assertions for a, for a what? A one-eyed fat man, that's right. Okay, for those of you who are following by CD or the Internet, i got two eyes still, but I just love the quote. It's my favorite movie quote of all time. 
and they're remaking that movie, and I have to go to see if they if they keep they keep that in there. Anyway, I said this such things as this: Bathsheba was raped. If you were here last Sunday, I said that Bathsheba was raped by David, taken by force. She is not. Forget the movie. Forget what you saw or might have read. The evidence in the scripture does not support that Bathsheba was party to this. She was bathing, a a purification ritual. The chances that she's alone isn't even there. The chances that she can be seen significantly isn't even there. It's a purification bathing that she's going through for uncleanliness. We covered what that meant last week. If you weren't there, you weren't here, come and see me. I'll explain it again privately to you. Anyway, that was my point or my, my assertion that Bathsheba was raped by David taken by force and that the evidence given in Scripture supports that view and that view alone. Then I went on to say that Uriah knew what had happened. Uriah was not deceived. Uriah was not deceived. Uriah was not deceived. What am I trying to do to you? I'm trying to connect you to who? Adam and Satan. So I am saying there is a relationship between Uriah and David and Adam and Satan. 1 Timothy 2.14 is that reference. So Uriah's refusal to go to his house was designed specifically to thwart David's plausible deniability. It was, if you will, almost a counter-move move, a chess game. Uriah knew exactly why he was called back. He knew immediately when he saw David what was up. He thought about it on his way there, and he couldn't come up with any other conclusion than the one that he had. And he refused to go into his house, and I think he did so specifically because he knew that David was attempting to cover up his wickedness. In other words, Uriah would not be accomplishment. Uh, I'm sorry, would not be an accomplice to David's evil. And he said this to, to David: this powerful, powerful thing from Uriah the Hittite, spoken to, directed at King David. And I, I enter this as evidence um, for my position: as you live, and as your soul lives. Now, there's some terrific theology. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I won't participate in what you want me to do. It is a thing. I will not do it. He told that to the king of Israel. The king of Israel gave him gifts and told him to go and have intimate relations with his wife and Uriah was not deceived in my view and said I will not do this thing powerful words and this now makes one wonder how much exactly did Uriah figure out how much did he know his king is in a lot of trouble he knows that He's called back from the battlefield. He knows that. Tremendous amount of tension going on around here. He knows that. He's being told, directed, tried to get to go into his house. How much did he figure out? He's even being told specifically what to do when he's in his, in his house. 
Did he figure out that his wife had been taken by force and raped? How smart is Uriah? I will not do this thing. Had he figured out that by not going into his house, by not participating in David's wickedness, did he figure out what David's next move would be? Now you get to know what David's next move is because you have hindsight. You get to read it. But Uriah had to think about it. My wife has been raped. She is pregnant. I wonder if he figured that out. This is the guy that did it. The king of Israel. Very powerful man here. I can help him cover it up. Or not. I choose not. If I choose not, what's the consequences to me? What's the consequences to the king? What's the consequences to Bathsheba? Did Uriah figure out that David would next move would be to kill him? Did he figure that out? I suspect that he did. Again, I will not do this thing. Those are words spoken by a man that knows the consequences of those kinds of words. You see, the rape of Bathsheba is a what in Leviticus 20? It's a what? What is what? If you take another man's wife, what is it? Jewish law. It's a capital offense. David is subject to the death penalty. If David were attempt to blame it on Bathsheba, consensual adultery, then both are subject to the death penalty, Leviticus 20. So we, when we have the trial, what's David going to do? By the way, I, do, I deal with this all the time. What, what's going to happen at that trial? Well, we're going to lie like crazy and blame the other guy, right? That's what's going to happen. And i got a king... And I have a young woman, and she sends him a note. I am with child. There is evidence of what has happened that is irrefutable. I have evidence. You're not, you're not getting out of this now. Bathsheba is with child, and there are witnesses everywhere, and the evidence is indisputable, and it is probably about eight months away, I would, I would estimate. And did Uriah consider all of this? Did Uriah conclude that David could only cover this up if Uriah dies? And if that's the case, he says, I will not do this thing. I will take death on the battlefield before I participate in this. That is why he is called a man of great honor in Scripture. Did he then know what was in the letter to Joab? For those of you who weren't here last week, uh, David writes a letter, his death warrant, effectively, and gives it to Uriah to take to Joab. So Uriah is carrying a letter that tells his commander to, to send him into battle and then withdraw the forces and let him be killed. Did, Joe, did Uriah know what was in that letter? Did he know that this was his death warrant? If Uriah does not die, what is the fate of Bathsheba? She's up against the king. What's the king going to do? 
What is the fate of Bathsheba if Uriah does not die? Because the only way this, uh, the, that this is going to work for David is if, if Uriah dies. And it becomes quickly apparent that the only solution, as I said, is if Uriah does not claim the child as his own, if Uriah does not lie with his wife, the only way that David can save himself, not lie is tell a lie, but lay with his wife, which is a euphemism for intimacy. So let me repeat it. It becomes quickly apparent that the only solution becomes this. If Uriah does not claim the child as his own, if Uriah does not have intimate relations with his wife, the only way David can save himself, the only way that David can save David is what? And that's to enlist Joab into a scheme to retreat and let Uriah be slaughtered on the battlefield. And I've often wondered about that. I've thought, thought about it quite a bit. Um, I've done this quite a few times. I have this great position. I am joined by others in it, but it is by far the minority view. Um, which means what? Oh, a lot of people are wrong out there here. Lots of people have messed this up. I'm, I'm kidding. Not really. Not really. I actually do think that that's the case. But I'm off, I often wondered about it. How many men went with Uriah into that battle? And they knew where they were going. They knew they were going into the place where the most, in, the fiercest fighters on the other side were. How many of David's mighty men went with Uriah knowing that this, that Joab was instructed to retreat? What if Joab doesn't do what's in that letter, by the way? Yeah, he's got problems, doesn't he? Do you think that Uriah and Joab talked about this? I brought that up last week. Do you think that Uriah and the other men with him talked about it? How many other men, just a second, how many other men were with Uriah when he died? Quite a few. Did they know? And if they knew, why did they go? Yes, in the back. Oh. Interesting question. Her question was, is how do I know that Uriah and David did not talk about it? Because that would show to me that David uh, was... I'm going to, uh, going to be on the side that David was profoundly evil here. Doing everything he could to cover this up. Don't, don't get ahead of the pastor here. Because you're exactly right. Which makes that a what kind of reference? Uh, Genesis 3.15. You're right. Very good. Let's see, where is that? Now I have to skip page 9 now. For those of you who heard it. But most of you didn't hear that. Like I said, I wanted to know what the men that were going to go with Uriah, did they know they were going to die before they went? I'm going to submit to you that they did. These are the mighty men of David. These are the servants of Joab. These are the best of the best. These are men that stick together. And they know that Uriah is going into his death. And they know that Joab is going to retreat. And they know they're going to fight and they're going to die. I want to know how well they fought. It reminds me of an incredible story of the Roman army. It's in, in, from all accounts, it's a true story about um, the Roman army was converted, mostly by the Apostle John. 
and they were on a campaign. It's a, I'm just inserting this. I hope I have the time to finish the lecture now. But it is an amazing story. And they, their commander and the entire battalion that he had was all saved men. And they were ordered by the Roman emperor to denounce Christ or die. And they all said, we will die. And they all stripped to their clothing and they walked into a frozen lake and they sang until they all died. Those are the men that Uriah is with. That's the kind of men that are there. They knew, I submit, these are the mighty men of David. What might have been said beforehand, before they went into battle, the mighty men of David standing with Uriah the Honorable Hittite. There's how much more is there to this story? I suspect quite a bit. The thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's why I don't think he talked to Uriah, because David was evil through and through. The thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. 2 Samuel 11.27 If your Bible does not emphasize the word evil, if it says displeased, cross that out. The word literally means evil. Pure evil. Uriah is going to die so that his wife who is pregnant with the child of another man who raped her, can live. And as Felicia points out, that is a Genesis 3, an undeceived man in a chess match with evil makes the decision to die, to sacrifice himself, so that his bride, who is what? Filthy, can live. Now, Let us add in 2 Samuel 12, the mysterious prophetic prophecy of Nathan. And once again, as with 2 Samuel 11, uh, we've got to do this. We must, we must, we must accomplish John 5.39. What's John 5.39? If you're not looking for Christ, I gave you Christ on a platter there, didn't I, in, in 2 Samuel 11. Okay, now I'm going to try to do it again for you. How many of you, I don't raise your hand, never raise your hand here. How many of you, when you read Uriah the Hittite and the honor of his death and the, uh, the destruction of Bathsheba and the evil of David, how many of you found Christ there? Now we're going to do it again. John 5.39. We must find that which testifies of Christ. If we don't, we have wasted our time. So, again, where was Jesus Christ in 2 Samuel 11? A knowing, willing obedience unto death to save the bride. The bride who was in filth from condemnation. Okay? Now, 2 Samuel. This is extraordinary. If you think this is easy, you in trouble. Not easy. Very, very tough. Let's read it together as much as we can. I have to cut it short a little bit. I might skip around. So read with me if you can. It's important that you do. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. I hope you see how amazing that is. 
Then, let me repeat it, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, it's a parable, by the way. The heaven-sent man is speaking to David in parables. They should have found Christ already. Okay. Here's the parable. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. The poor man had one ewe lamb. And he loved that ewe lamb. It was small. It was defenseless. And it was greatly loved as if it were his daughter. That's who. That is Uriah, and that is Bathsheba. So if you have a position that says Bathsheba is a seductress, nasty girl, that seduces the king who just happened to be on his roof, well, you've got to deal with Nathan's parable. Because that's not what it says. Shock of all shocks, Hollywood got it wrong. Okay? And a traveler, really? A traveler? Guy just happens by. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and slaughtered it for food. For the man who had come to him. So the traveler wants something. What's he want? So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. Because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Notice this thing keeps showing up again over and over and over again. What David did is called this thing. And it is a disgraceful, wicked, evil act. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. Gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? Obvious question. Which commandment? Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed the Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword will, shall never depart 
from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of of his son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the children of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. Okay. Let's first make something as clear as I can, because this is the time of the year to do it. This is the time of the hovering of the Holy Spirit over the Virgin Mary. That's what we have now. It is, uh, it is not the birth of Christ, as you know. That occurred in September or October at the latest, but it certainly is not the birth of Christ. This is the overshadowing, if you will, or the hovering of the Holy Spirit, as I said, Luke one thirty five over Mary. This is the holy thing, or what I used to call, what I still call Gabriel must what, which means Gabriel sent. It's not Christmas. It is not when Christ is sent. It is Gabriel must or Gabriel sent. This is the time of the miraculous conception of the holy thing. It occurred at the darkest part of the year, which I would expect, right? Not the birth of the holy thing. That occurs on the feast day of trumpets. Again, October, if you will. So I have Christmas, Christ sent, Michaelmas, Michael sent, Angel Michael, Archangel Michael, Gabrielmas. And those are not my terms, by the way. Those are actual historical terms in the church. And that is what they have used for centuries. Anyway, because this is almost Gabrielmas, we should immediately note something. Okay? The child born shall surely die. That is the last verse, isn't it? Find Christ. The child born shall surely die. I took some things out of it, right? The child... Let me... Put that out for you here. Let's just break it down. That is this season, isn't it? The child born. Now, again, I left some words out. Shall surely die. That just always reminds me. I'm sorry. My mind does this in the midst of very solemn things. I can't help but think of Leslie Nielsen. Please don't call me Shirley. Can't help it. The child born shall surely die. David, the wicked, murdering sinner, deserving, greatly deserving of death, does not die because the child that is born or to be born will die in his place. Instead, the child born will die in his place. The legal punishment of David is transferred to the child. Don't miss that at the least. There is your 539 John, right? Now, back to Nathan's parable. Nathan is the heaven-sent one, the one that the Lord had sent. Again, Christ sent, Christmas. Okay, And he has a parable. Christ, of course, as you know, after his Messiahship is, uh, is rejected in Matthew 12, begins to speak to the 
uh, nation of Israel in parables. So Nathan has a parable for the wicked Gentile murdering king of Israel. Because we can make the case that Uriah, the Hittite, is a converted Gentile. Can we not? So Nathan, the Christ sent one, or the Christmas one, or the heaven sent one, has a parable again for the Gentile murdering King David. We should expect that, should we not? Parables? Because Israel does not teach, refuse to teach that Jesus Christ was in fact the Messiah and that salvation is by grace alone, Habakkuk 2.4. So there's two men, a rich one and a poor one. The poor one had nothing except one female lamb. He raised it with his children. It is Bathsheba. It is the daughter of Eliam. His friend. So I asked the question, another mighty man of David. I wondered, where is Eliam? This is his daughter. Where is he? Why is Uriah raising the daughter of Eliam as his own? What kind of relationship is this? Why is Bathsheba the wife of of a 50-some-odd old man. What's going on? Why would he do that? He definitely isn't going to go in and lay with his wife, is he? A traveler comes to the rich man. A traveler. What's the obvious question now? Who is this traveler? Where does he come from? If you can find Christ in the story, who else should you then start looking for? You should start looking for the Antichrist. And it is obvious that the Antichrist is the wayfaring man and is the traveler. He wants the lamb destroyed, killed, and served to him. We would expect that, wouldn't we, of the traveler? He wants the lamb, the innocent, devoured. He wants the beloved of Uriah destroyed. So you have two positions here. You have the lamb is is the lamb, but it's a female lamb, and so that bothers people. They don't make the lamb assignment to Christ. So where do they make the lamb assignment? Who becomes Uriah? Who is the beloved of Uriah? Who is the wife of Uriah if Uriah is the Christ figure? It is the nation of Israel. Who wants the lamb torn to pieces, Zechariah 12, and devoured? There's your Antichrist reference, right? Notice that David unknowingly declares himself to be deserving of death. And notice this fourfold judgment. We'll get to that next week. But that is the, there's four sons of David now that die because of this wickedness. Finally for today, and we're going to be back again. On the, we'll do this again. This is for the Internet people. I'll finish this up on the January 9th sermon, or maybe not finish it, but I'll take a, a big swipe at it, put a big dent. I want to a- emphasize the relationship of David's decision to commit rape, adultery, if you will, and then his subsequent decision to murder. I said this last week. There's two decisions. The first one is rape, adultery decision. The second one is the death decision. So those are the two decisions, rape, adultery, and death. No time to put all this on the board. And I want you to compare it to Adam's two decisions, as Felicia brought up in the back. Adultery, the first three 
not taking from the second tree, not choosing to be in sin forever. Sin forever is the second death. I want you to compare the two decisions of David with the two decisions of Adam and start to mull that over in your mind for the uh, January 9th finish. Also, Bathsheba. Very important to know this. Bathsheba has two sons, essentially, if you want to boil it down with this. She has the child born who dies. Who's the other son that she has? Yes, Jedediah are also called Solomon. She has Solomon the what? The wise king, right? So she has two sons. The king and the child who dies. What is that? Who is Bathsheba? She has, she is the little ewe. She is the female lamb that Uriah loves that he takes and raises and puts on his bosom that is sought to be destroyed and eaten by the Zechariah 12 wicked shepherd. But here's Bathsheba. If you think this is a seductress, look at what she does. Look at how she is honored. She has the child who has sin transferred to him and dies. That is clearly the what? That's the first coming of Christ, is it not? The first advent and then the wise king. That is the second coming or the second advent. That is Bathsheba. How honored is she? Unto... Unto us a child is born, unto us a king. The two advents of Christ. Compare that to Mary, right? And finally, this is how we end. Wow, on time and everything. Second Samuel twelve thirteen. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's what? That is a confession. I have sinned against the Lord. If you compare the two decisions made by Adam with the two decisions made, I'm sorry, the two decisions made by David, and you compare them to the two decisions made by Adam, you must then find the confession of David and compare it and find what? The confession of Adam. Okay? Do that for homework, and I'll see you 8 p.m. Friday, where we will... Celebrate Gabriel Mus or whatever we do. And we'll have Kentucky Fried Chicken and Cheez Its. It'll be great. Don't miss it. We'll steal the uh, candles, by the way, we hope, from uh, New Grace. And therefore, we will have kind of a used candlelight service. It'll be cool. Okay. Yeah. Let's rise and be dismissed. Thank you.